0: I want to take just a moment to congratulate Penny Pennington and Arika Harris, both from Edward Jones and my dear friend, Rusty Keeley, for being named the chairs of the United Way of Greater St. Louis 2022 annual community campaign. Edward Jones, Keeley Companies and the United Way of Greater St. Louis positively impact our communities each and every day. And we are inspired by the example that they set. We encourage all of our listeners, regardless where you are tuning in from, to join the mission of the United Way in mobilizing the community with one goal in mind, helping people live their best possible lives. You can learn more about the work they do and the work Keeley Companies does
1: at KeeleyCompanies.com. Welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. John is the number one national bestselling author of the book On Fire. He's a world class inspirational speaker, and he's the host of the Live Inspired podcast. John interviews extraordinary individuals on their life story so that you can wake up from accidental living and more fully live your life story. Here's your host,
0: John O'Leary. Hello, my friends, and welcome to the Live Inspired podcast with John O'Leary. And today you and I are in for a treat on so many different levels. Number one, you ready for this? We are doing this broadcast from the general manager suite right here in St. Louis, Missouri at the home of the St. Louis Cardinals. So we're up here in the stadium. Playoff tickets go on sale tomorrow for those of us who uh, bleed Cardinal red. Get ready for that. Albert Pujols continues the pursuit of 700 home runs. The St. Louis Cardinals baseball team continues its pursuit of yet another playoff berth, which over the last 140 years of its existence, and certainly over the last 20 years of this run, is not surprising. What you will find surprising today is our guest. You're gonna find surprising his story, his journey, his humility, his life, and his impact. His name is Mike Gersh. Michael Gersh is currently the general managers of these St. Louis Cardinals. He's also, a buyer beware, a dear friend of mine. We have kids who go to the same schools and church together, so I know Mike well. You're gonna find out a little bit more about that friendship and a little bit more about Mike Gersh during this conversation. Now, before you flip the channel on me, Cubs fans, or for my friends tuning in from around the world, because you don't like baseball, Well, I've got good news for you. This is not going to be exclusively a baseball podcast. In in fact, it's going to be primarily a personal podcast. It's going to be primarily the story of a kid who grew up loving something, had a dream to do something, started living his life before coming back to that dream, taking some chances, having a little bit of luck, having a little bit of faith, taking the next right step, And ending up right here next to me today in the general manager's box here in St. Louis at Bush Stadium. It's going to be an awesome conversation with an awesome man celebrating an awesome team. So without further ado, my friends, won't you buckle up? In fact, don't buckle up today. Please rise for the playing of the national anthem. Later on, we're going to play Take Me Out to the Ball Game. But before we do that, let me introduce you to my friend and soon to be yours. You're going to love him. His name is Mike Gersh. Michael Gersh, welcome to Live Inspired with John O'Leary. I'm glad to be here, this is awesome. Mike, I always give people a long, rolling, roaring introduction, but today I'd like you to introduce yourself (laughs) to our our listeners tuning in from around the United States and around the world. If you and I had bumped into each other randomly, and I said, hey, I'm John O'Leary, this is about me, and you said, hey,
1: I'm Mike Gersh, how would you introduce yourself uh, it kind of depends on the context. Oftentimes, I introduce myself as Addie's dad or Ellie's dad. Or uh, I, have, I have four kids, uh, twin, twin freshmen in college, uh, a junior in high school, and a freshman in high school. And so many people I meet are in the context of which kid is yours on that volleyball team or which kid is yours on the field hockey team or what have you. So father of four. But professionally, I've spent the last 16 years working with St. Louis Cardinals and currently in the, uh, the general manager of the uh, St. Louis Cardinals. So we're going to talk about becoming a general manager. There are 30 of those
0: positions in the world. You happen to sit in one of them. It's a remarkable accomplishment. And the humility with which you have graced this chair is also something I want to talk about today. But to get there, we got to look back first. You've had a lot of folks in your life who've influenced you. One of the remarkable ones, I've done a little recount on you, Gersh. Dad. Dad was a seminarian. Almost did not get married almost to not have kids, ends up ultimately leaving the seminary, getting married, having five kids. One of them is seated in front of me. Talk
1: about your dad. So my dad grew up in the south side of Chicago uh, to a, a very Catholic family. Uh, he had an older brother who went to the seminary and became a priest, uh, eventually left the priesthood and had six kids. <laughs> uh, my dad went to a seminary in high school, which prepared you for life in the seminary. He went to the seminary for, I believe, seven or 10 days or so and then uh, and left to to, uh, enroll at Loyola University in Chicago, was an accountant, worked for Arthur Anderson for a little while, and then worked for Waste Management. He he was a very successful businessman, CFO of of, a publicly traded company, quote unquote, retired at age 50, because that was one of the goals he set in life was to be retired at age 50. Uh, Probably a year or two later, he was back working again. But as he said, the rest of his life, he scheduled his meetings around his tea times as opposed to scheduling tea times around his meetings. So in his world, that was good enough to be considered still retired. And uh, yeah, he's been a big, big influence on my life. He was a, a math guy. He was an analytics guy. He was a huge baseball fan. Took me to a ton of White Sox games, Cubs games, mostly White Sox games was a South Sider. And uh was a big influence on, on me being here. So he's the South Sider, but uh, while working, he meets a North
0: Sider. He meets your mom. Uh, she's a Cubs fan. She's also your mother and the mother of four other
1: kids. Talk about your mother uh mom mom was a north sider uh she was not actually a cub fan because my mom couldn't have cared less about the cubs or any sports <laughs> team uh her dad my papa was a big was a big cubs fan growing up yeah my mom raised five kids i have an older brother and older sister a younger brother and younger sister so i have every middle child complex apparently and my mom yeah she raised all of us she my dad traveled a lot my dad uh worked hard provided very well for us but my mom was sort of the glue that, that kept the family together and uh and my papa, her dad, was the reason that I was a Cub fan up until the day I uh, accepted a job with, with the uh, Cardinals. I've heard about your papa. Uh,
0: you know, Mike, all of us are influenced by the generations who lead us forward in life. But it seems like your, fa- your grandfather wasn't with you a long time, eight years or so. But here you are raising four kids, general manager of the St. Louis Cardinals, and he continues to impact your life. What, what
1: was it about papa? So there's sort of two parts to it. So one was he was... He he was very different than my dad, very different than me in that he was a blue collar. He worked in the city of Chicago on like the streets and sanitations uh, department or something. He built highways and built sewers and worked on backhoes and like did stuff, fixed stuff. Like he came (laughs) home dirty at the end of the day. And uh, he retired about when I was born, give or take, or at least when I was very young. And so he would come to our house to a fix everything around our house, like every toy that broke, every appliance that broke, and if he couldn't fix it, he'd sit there and watch the guy fixing it and ask questions and make sure that they didn't screw my mom over because she didn't know what was going on or whatever. Um, but he also came over to watch Cubs games because they played day games back then. It was all day baseball. Right. So my older brother was in school by then, so my older brother stayed a White Sox fan with my dad, and my younger brother and I watched Cubs games with Papa forever and. uh our job was, we were his helpers on projects, and our job was to go tell him to score the Cubs game and or go get him a beer and, and bring him back. And, uh, yeah, he was, he was a big influence on me. He, I remember him smoking pipes and cigars, and I love the smell of pipes and cigars because they remind me of my papa. But he smoked cigarettes for a long time before that, had throat cancer, and passed away when I was eight. It was the summer of 1984. The Cubs made the playoffs for the first time in 39 years, I think, that year, and he passed away sort of that, in the middle of that season. He. Not only informed the way you show up and
0: the work ethic, I think that you still have to this day, but he, he left behind also a chain for you. Something yeah. You still keep something you yeah, still Yeah, I have it
1: on right now. A, uh, I asked my grandmother, I asked grandma uh, when I was graduating high school. I think my mom wanted to buy me a class ring. I'm like, Mom, I'm never going to wear a ring. I'd rather have like a chain, like the papa wear a chain. And my grandma said, No. And then like five years later, my grandma moved out of their house into some assisted living sort of situation. And my mom found a chain that my, uh, that my, my papa used to wear. So I, I, I wear it every day. Why? I don't know. It reminds me of him. I have a cool chain. Yeah. It just connects me to, to, to my papa. He was, a for someone who passed away when I was eight years old, he's someone I think about a lot more than you might otherwise.
0: Yeah. So. Link unlimited. Talk you, about you what- You did Lincoln. do your research. Well, oh I had gosh. a little bit of help. I happen to know your wife a little bit, and yeah. now I happen to know your brother. Yeah, your sure. brother wants me to spend the entire conversation talking about Greg. I, I'm not <laughs> going to. I'm not going
1: to do it. He's also fun to talk about.
0: So. <laughs> we'll say that for round two.
1: Link Unlimited. Yeah. What is Link Unlimited? Uh, Link Unlimited is an organization in Chicago that connects sponsors, people who can afford to help inner city youth get into predominantly Catholic schools for high school in the city. Um, it's not all Catholic schools, there are some other private schools involved, but it's primarily helping kids from the inner city of Chicago, mostly African-American who are in a public school system that doesn't offer them all the opportunities that, that you know, I and you have been able to afford our kids and get those kids into some of the best Catholic schools in, uh, in Chicago. And it's, it's not a writing a check, it's becoming a sponsor. And so um, our family, around the time my older brother started high school, my parents got involved and Andrew Lewis was our first link student. And he uh, attended De La Salle High School, played football there, went on to college at DePaul, um, became a CPA, um, and has been a family friend ever since he was at the three, the three boys of my family all got married. And I think he attended all three of our weddings. I know he attended Mari wedding and Brad's I think he was at Greg's. Um, and so he became a family friend and my parents have have been involved in Link for a long time right. and sponsored, I don't know, I sponsored about six kids before they started spending so much time in Florida that right. didn't really make sense to sponsor. Uh, my younger brother worked for Link for a little while in, the, in fundraising and, and the like. Uh, my wife and I sponsored a couple of students while we lived in Chicago, and uh, we now sort of just write a check to help someone who can't afford to sponsor. I mean, as yeah, you know, yeah. Catholic school is not cheap, so a full sponsorship is, is a big commitment, but some people want to be involved but can't can't fully, you know, pay for a kid to go to Catholic high school. And so we write a check every year to sort of help the program. It's, it's, uh, it's been, it's a great program. And I think it was, my parents did a really nice job of getting involved in something that got the family involved. I'm not sure I've done that with my own family as much. I don't know if my kids, I send a lot, I spend a lot more check writing than I do uh, sweat equity into things. Right. And so um, it, it offered the five of us, my siblings and I who grew up in the suburbs, you know, to, to see what other people's lives were like. Mm.
0: What I love about reading that story and learning a little bit more about Link is that not only were you writing checks as a family and spending time with these kids, but you were spending time with these kids' families. So it was just not only changing one life, but changing all the lives in this story.
1: Yeah, for sure. It was. We would go have dinner at their house. They'd come out to have dinner with us. It was back when the Bulls were good, so we tended to do a lot of uh, bringing families to Bulls games and the like. But um, yeah, it was a very neat experience, a very neat program that my, my parents introduced us to Perfect pivot, man. Let's let's pivot away from
0: family into sports. Bowls. You're in Chicago. Dad has season tickets. You're going to all the games when Jordan is doing his thing. What was that like as a as a Chicago kid? A sports fan,
1: a huge, huge Bowls fan. Jordan broke his leg, I want to say his second season and missed most of the season and came back and played in the playoffs. And I want to say that was like 1986. For whatever reason my dad thought this 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 could be interesting. And he got eight eight season tickets in the third deck of the old Chicago stadium, which was like a (laughs) one third, the volume of the normal stadium. Now it was tiny and loud. And, and because he had these eight season tickets, I, I went to virtually every big bulls game for Jordan's career and with, with my family. And, uh, I also took my wife, our first date was to a Bulls game. I, I met, once met Jerry Reinsort, because Reinsort owns the Bulls and the White Sox. I met him at a winter meetings, and I actually thanked him because I told him, because of him, I got the first date with my wife, and he was like, I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> and I explained that when I was in high school, I had Bulls tickets, and I could get at least one date with almost anybody. Right. Like at least the first date, I had a pretty good hook. It was amazing to be part of, it was amazing to see just how a city comes together in their hatred of the Detroit Pistons or of their love of Michael Jordan and the rest of the bulls. And looking back now, it's sort of my, especially with the bull, the, the Jordan, what was that? The last dance that came yes. out during the pandemic and stuff. It's just being around someone and watching someone who was literally the best ever at their job is uh, it, it's like at the time you're just excited and you're a kid, you know, but it's like a privilege. It's like, Yeah, you know, I've been lucky enough to be around Jordan and again, not around in any meaningful way, but like at a lot of games for Jordan, you know, in the 90s with Jordan. And then I I was lucky enough to show up here in 2006 and watch Albert Pujols in the middle of like one of the best runs of a right handed hitter in the history of baseball. And it was just like, it's just sort of you're in awe of like true greatness. Mm
0: So when I'm in awe of true greatness, I, I'm a heart led guy. I'm not very analytical. So uh, one of our mutual friends, a guy named Dennis Steiner, and I went to grade school together, we'd trade baseball cards. And I would collect every single Cardinal. I'd happily trade a Bo Jackson rookie or a Carl Yastrinske rookie for a reliever. We'd bring in the seventh inning, T.J. Matthews. Yeah, give me the T.J. Matthews Cardinal card. Your brother shared with me that you guys used to play some fantasy baseball. And he would collect all the Cubs and lose every year and you would look actually at the analytics even as a kid you look at the analytics and uh play to win talk talk about being a fantasy baseball player and what you were looking for
1: even back then mike i've been a very analytical kid my whole life i've always been good at math and always looked at the world through like probabilities and statistics (laughs) in a way that like i don't know when that happened i don't know like what class or what like i i don't know i I never didn't think of the world that way. I don't think. Um, I used to keep my own stats in Little League. And when fantasy baseball became a thing on the old Prodigy dial in network server or whatever, um, I, that was, yeah, that's, I taught myself spreadsheets because I wanted to win my fantasy baseball games. <laughs> and I didn't really know what I was doing. I didn't realize you could sort on a spreadsheet. So I would sort by hand because that was the only way I knew how. And there was a lot more copying and pasting than it needed to be. But um, But yeah, that's, that's, the way I look at everything. And I think you could, you could ask Kelly and maybe you have, but it's really annoying to live with someone who looks at everything very analytically and always has like we'll a slightly better <laughs> way of, of, of dealing with stuff. But it, it, it's not something like I choose to do, right? It's not like I choose to be analytical about baseball and I choose not to be analytical about other things. It's just, that's the way mm. the world looks to me. The world looked at you as an athlete.
0: You go on through grade school, you did well, you went on to high school, you played several sports. But I don't want to talk about sports. I want to talk about a diagnosis I did not know about. You never talked about it before. You got melanoma in high school. Talk about that, Mike.
1: My senior year in high school, I had a mole in the middle of my back that I never saw. I I, I couldn't tell you what it looked like or how big it was. It was kind of right between my shoulder blades. My mom took me to a dermatologist. I got it removed and they did some testing on it and it came back suspicious. So I went to an oncologist and they did more testing and they told me i had skin cancer in the middle of senior year i had a surgery to remove a, a chunk of skin like not just like the actual mole, but like kind of yeah. all the area below the mole and around the mole and i don't know maybe a half dozen or a dozen stitches to close it up or whatever and that was kind of it when you're told you're you know, i guess i was 17 years old when you're told you have cancer at 17 like it's like pretty big shock But I never had chemotherapy. I never had radiation. I never had, I I had to have a second surgery only because the first one resulted in a mass of scar tissue that was actually more painful than the mole ever was. And so they went back in to remove that, but not, I never had anything in my lymph nodes. I never had another uh, mole that caused any concern. How did that shape your outlook on life? Most of us at
0: 17 know we're going to live forever.
1: I think I was naive enough to be pretty sure I was going to live forever, but, right? Like I remember some hard conversations with with my friends, telling them about this. I think being the doctor and my parents were positive enough that, like, you have cancer, but we have it. We found it really early, as opposed to like you have cancer and holy shit, we don't know what's going to happen next. Right. I recall like hearing cancer and kind of blacking out, right? Like I don't really know right. what else was going on, but I don't recall being like the, the next day or the next week being terrified of what this meant for the rest of my life, right? right? It was like, they're gonna do surgery and remove it, and then they'll tell me whether or not that's the end or whether there's more, right? Yeah. And so it was, a, it was a bad diagnosis, but not a like a long-term life-changing gotcha. well, situation.
0: It, in some regards, it led to a life-changing situation because one of the visitors to Rush Hospital was a woman named Kelly, a classmate of yours. Yeah, I think the story's already been told. You're gonna end up marrying this girl. You're gonna end up having four kids with this young lady. What was it about Kelly that you, uh, besides her physical beauty, Kelly's beautiful, besides that,
1: what was it that you fell in love with? Man, We, we met freshman year in high school uh, in Latin class. We started dating senior year in high school because I bribed her with Bulls tickets. <laughs> so Kelly was, was a volleyball player, a very good volleyball player. She played volleyball in college. She was outgoing. She had a great smile. She laughed at my terrible jokes. She was athletic and into sports. Not in the same way I was into sports, like in a totally, totally different way. Like she didn't know she liked competition. She was very competitive. Like when we would go miniature golfing or play pool or whatever, she, I mean, she was definitely competitive and, but, but not in the way, like I'm into sports. She didn't know, you know, who the starting, you know, defensive tackles were for the 85 bears, which I can tell you if you needed to know. (laughs) No, we're, we're Uh, we're good on that. (laughs) She's just a very kind and sweet person who turned out to be an incredible wife and mother. Mm.
0: You date starting high school through college, all of college except for eight days. We won't talk about the eight days. Uh, eventually you graduate, you go to Notre Dame. She goes to a school very nearby. You move back to Chicago, speed taping this thing forward a little bit. You get a great job. You got your MBA. Life is good, Mike. And then you decide that you're going to start analyzing baseball w- without giving away the trade secrets or rocking all of our listeners back to sleep. What was it that you thought you knew about baseball that maybe other GMs and baseball leaders in front offices did not? We are
1: 20-somethings with newborn twins living in Chicago. I'm working for a consulting firm that I enjoy the work, but don't particularly care whether Walmart's Central American operations are more efficient or not. Uh, it's, it's, it's challenging. It's interesting. The people I work with are brilliant. Um, but I, I knew that, that this wasn't, that this wasn't going to be my career. Mm. And so I, I was thinking about what I wanted to do with my life. Like, and I didn't know if that meant, you know, choosing between working in finance or working in strategy, or if that meant choosing between working in the auto industry and working in the airline industry, or I, I just didn't know. I, I didn't know what, but I knew, I knew I wasn't going to be at this consulting firm forever. And the only thing I knew that I wanted to do when I grew up was, was that the GM of baseball. And it turned out that at that point, no one had randomly called me and asked me no. if I would no, they, they know. No one had called, shockingly. And so I started doing analysis of the Major League Baseball draft, uh, a, a, sort of like a research paper on, on the draft, comparing high school to college players and, and hitters to pitchers and, and, and valued them in dollars and cents because I had a background in MBA and consulting and the like. And, uh, and Kelly was very supportive of this. She thought it was great that I was chasing my dream. I spammed baseball with it. I didn't know anyone in baseball, so I sent emails to, uh, like, John Moselock is uh, the president of baseball operations here at the Cardinals. He's been my boss for the last 17 seasons. And uh, I sent it to John, J. jmoselock, at cardinals.com, at cardinalsbaseball.com, at stlcardinals.com. This is... How yeah. I needed this for all 30 teams? I, I think I skipped the two New York teams because I knew I was going to take a pay cut, and I didn't really want to move to New York with two kids taking a big pay cut. Um, but I did, it for, I did it for basically all 30 teams. And and I actually sent FedExes with my document to the Cubs and White Sox. And I was like, you got to open a FedEx, right? You can ignore an email, but you can't not open a FedEx. Like this could be important. And I didn't hear back from the Cubs and White Sox. Uh, I heard back from three teams. One of them was the Cardinals. Uh, came down to uh, I actually randomly I had tickets to Game Six of the NLCS in 2005 in Bush Stadium, where wow. I where I was planning. I, I, I threw a connection. Someone knew somebody. I was going to meet Mo. Uh, during batting practice and sit with Jeff Luno, who was their scouting director at the time, and uh, but that game wasn't going to happen until Rules hit a home run off Brad Lidge in Houston that never came down. That gave the Cardinals a come from behind victory to force them to come back to Busch Stadium to play Game Six. Um, and then I interviewed with the Cardinals, got a job, the N job in the amateur scouting department. Uh, came home from that, told Kelly I had a job offer, and my super supportive wife cried right out. Because we were both Chicagoans with two kids. We had just found out we, had, we our, our twins were 18 months old. We had just found out we were, we were pregnant with a third. Uh, we didn't really know anyone in St. Louis. I was taking like a 75% pay cut and, and uh, we were gonna, but she was, she was on board with it.
0: She was just terrified. <laughs> That's shocking. The whole story, Mike, is shocking. Where do we wanna begin? <laughs> Let's start with the dream. You are in the seat right now, general manager role. It was your dream as a child and as a young man. And it's more likely actually to become a baseball player, which is highly unlikely at an MLB level, than to become a GM. Why in the world do you think one day, through my work ethic and knowledge
1: and faithfulness and courage and character, I can become a GM? <laughs> it's a great question, and and I was probably incredibly impractical at the time. I think when I left Chicago to move down here to start a job, a career in baseball, my aspiration was to become a GM. But honestly, like I just wanted to work in baseball, right? one of the first things i realized when i talked to the few assistant gms who did respond to my all my uh, spam was like i can have conversations with these guys and not feel out of my own right like all the time i've wasted playing fantasy baseball reading baseball articles doing my own analysis my own research like like dude this is serious like yeah i th- it wasn't wasted like i actually have like a base of knowledge where i can have conversation with anybody in the baseball industry and not make it make a fool of myself. Now I might not be right, but I at least will make a fool of myself. And uh and the idea of doing the kind of analytics and the kind of work that I was for again for Walmart or PepsiCo or whatever, doing that for a team that, you know, that was competing was and on a topic I cared about was uh, you know, that just sounded great. And if if it never worked out where I became the GM of a team, yeah. I've loved every minute of this job, not just the minutes when I became GM, right? So mm. the first 10 years were just as good and just as rewarding as, as the last five. Minutes. So, been. And I, I do think that I, I had a lot of luck and timing along the way, including Moneyball the book had come out a couple years before I started applying for jobs. I was in the sweet spot of the transition into analytics in the baseball industry. Um, some teams had already jumped in full more. Full that's Mo calling. That's awkward. Um,
0: That's probably Kelly saying, you better not have talked about the 75% pay cut. <laughs> the
1: GM never gets it. This is, there's always trades to be done. No, we can't trade, it's after the trade done. Mm. I was very lucky in timing. Moneyball comes out, the A's and some other teams are very into analytics. A lot of teams are very against analytics and are like, just to prove a point, we're gonna like make sure we don't do analytics. Mm. But teams like the, the Cardinals, and because of Mr. DeWitt and his hiring of Jeff Luno, we're like in the process. When I was trying to sell myself to teams, I was trying to sell myself to the open A's as I know you believe that this stuff helps, I can help you do it. I was trying to sell myself to other teams as you might not believe this stuff helps, but look what I could do if you yes. gave me a chance to help. And there were actually teams who were receptive to that idea, right? And so if I had tried to do this five years before, I think nobody would have given me the time of day, except yeah. maybe if I got lucky with the, the A's or something. If I had tried doing it five years later, I would have been competing with a million other kids, yeah. trying to get the same job, With all, yeah, And like, let me tell you, it is really hard now. Like the resumes that we get are really impressive. I was at the right time, right place, right time, where I was a candidate for a type of role that the industry was just starting to look for Mm. and and be open to. 75% pay cut,
0: what
1: were you doing when you first hired on Cardinals? So my first job with Cardinals was uh, an entry level job in amateur scouting. So our amateur scouting department is about 20 scouts who are out scouting high school, junior college, and college players who are eligible for the draft each year basically none of them live in St. Louis. There's a couple in Southern California, there's a couple in Texas, a couple in Florida, and then they're spread out around the rest of the country where you would think baseball's being played. Uh, my job at the time, the best description of my job was that I was an iPhone before iPhones existed. So people called me to make flight reservations, to rent them a car, to check the weather, to tell them directions to the high school they can't find, to ask, you know, this kid just, I just got here, and this kid's got mono, are there any other games nearby that right. I should drive to because I'm, I'm in town, and what should I do? Um, and I processed expense reports, all that sort of stuff. That was the, that was the job that I got. I did that. And then on nights and weekends, I did the analytical work, the evaluation work, the sort of stuff that, that I wanted to do. Right. That didn't really have a home yet in, in the, in our front office. But that was what I was actually responsible for, was, was that stuff. So I'm hearing what you did, you know, in politics, they talk about a path to victory and you need a certain states and
0: delegates to show up. When I hear what you did and the amount of seats between you and the seat you currently have, I don't see a path to victory. <laughs> I, I don't see how you go from being the iPhone so John Jay knows you can get picked up at the airport. Right. I literally picked John Jay up there. the airport. I know, man. <laughs> I mean, you were, you, he called you an intern. Yeah. You were interning around with your MBA and three little kids at home and a, a wife who is lonely. Yeah. And struggling with three babies and not the same income you're used to and everything else in a new city. What kept you going? And you plural, because Kelly's part of this, so we'll keep yeah. them both going.
1: Again, being in the right place at the right time. We moved here in 2006, and, and, and the St. Louis Cardinals won the World Series in October of 2006. Do you take credit for that? I take no credit whatsoever. My ability to process suspension reports better than the guy before <laughs> me did not affect our on-field performance that year. But we got to go to World Series games and got to like, go to a parade and like, there are rewards for working in baseball. And one of them is, if you do a good job, they might throw a break in, right? And the fact that they did that right away, I think was very much like, oh, this is a really cool job, right? right? Like, this is this is not just like a theory cool job. It's like, literally, this is unbelievable. I had, all my family was coming out for World Series games. Kelly was at World Series games. Like, we, we, we didn't go on the parade because we had three kids, but we went basically to the end of the parade and watched it go by. I think that helped a lot. I think the other thing, like St. Louis is a very small sort of provincial place, but if you are pushing a stroller with two 18-month-olds while you're visibly pregnant, people will stop and help you and ask you, what's, what's your wrong story with you? <laughs> Where did you come from? Because you didn't go high school here. Or no one recognizes you. So Kelly made friends quickly and, and found play dates and found a, a, a mom's group and got settled in here, I think, far quicker than if we had come here before we had kids. And the other thing is that, things progressed for me in my career relatively quickly. So I was amateur scouting coordinator for a couple of years. We had a little bit of change in the front office leadership and created an analytical group. But we call it baseball development, our analytics and, and web development and that sort of thing, a group that didn't exist before. And I became the director of that. So I went from entry level to director of the analytics group, which really group was really two or three people at the time, but we slowly built that up. And I did that for several years. And then our assistant GM Who had been here for three or four years, left to go to San Diego Padres, and it was timed out about right, where I'd been the director of baseball development for a few years, and so I then got the opportunity to become assistant GM, where that's, again, another step in in the right direction. I did that for a while, and it's just the path to victory wasn't obvious at the time, but I am, like, both ambitious and very not concerned with the path to victory. Like, I've always... I've never had a plan. I did sell Kelly on a plan. When I first took the job, I did make up some plan where every two years I'd be promoted and I'd be like GM by, you know, by year eight or whatever. And I missed it by two years. And I totally made it up, but uh, that was just to sell her on the idea in the first place. But for the most part, I just, I've always just sort of done my job and figured that it'll work out. Right. Mm. And, And for me, I've been very lucky again, like things like the assistant GM leaving, if he had left two years before, We would have brought in some outside assistant GM and I might have been stuck behind him for a decade. Who knows, right? If he left two years later, I might have gotten antsy and been looking around or whatever. But he sort of, things have just sort of lined up. Work hard, keep your head down and and then hope things line up for you. What would you say to folks right now who are tuning in saying,
0: "Eh, it's a great story, it's not mine. Things aren't lining up for me and they're not working out for me. And when I try to go left, wind pushes me to the right and relationships haven't worked out. And for those right now, and there's many, Mike, uh, who tune into our podcast? Who are just struggling relationally, financially, professionally, in life? Which, what's your encouragement to them?
1: The biggest decision I made in my life was to actually apply and try to get a job. I always wanted to do this. There was nothing different about me after I wrote that baseball research paper than there was before. But but I had no one talking to me before. And after I did some work, I had opportunities. I had at least conversations, right? And whether they were going to work out, who knew? Part of the hardest part is is taking the first chance is making the first change right i think sometimes our our culture is about like don't give up stick through with whatever you started you know like don't be a quitter but i think sometimes the answer maybe is like don't let inertia mean that you don't try something new right? right like i was lucky in that i was doing well enough in my consulting job and and had had worked there for a while and had a little bit of a cushion where at age 29 i could take a chance and if this baseball thing totally blew up in my face, look, when I left the consulting company, I went in and, and talked to the head of the office. And I said, I said, Matt, you know, thank you for my year-end bonus. I appreciate the year-end bonus because it's bigger than the salary I'm about to accept. But just so you know, I'm leaving to go chase a dream of baseball. But there's some chance I'm back here in 18 months begging for my job back. So, like, I, I, I love you. I don't want to throw any bridges here, right? I was in a position where I could afford to take a chance. I had kids, but I was early enough in my career. I had a little bit of a cushion. If this whole thing blew up, I was pretty sure I would get back into that consulting gig and, and kind of restart that career. But I think part of it is everyone's situation is different and everyone's ability to take a chance is different. But if, if you don't take a chance, if you don't try something different, if you don't end one thing and try starting something new, it's you're, you're, you're not going to have mm. you're very likely on, to have the change that you're looking for, right? Whether that's a relationship or a job or a, yes. or where you live or whatever Like we all get stuck in ruts and if you don't shake things up you're probably not going
0: to get out of the rut. So the two biggest fans of the Live Inspire podcast are Susan and Denny O'Leary <sighs> You know them. I do. They know you too They know every move you've ever made They'll <laughs> give you more feedback on that later on as well their grandson Patrick you Keep training them on guys, I know, I know when they have a ninth inning loss, my mom and dad, like it, they, they get deeply bothered. Most Cardinal fans, most Cubs fans, most sport fans are passionate about their sport. And they tune in for three hours a day. This is your life. It is your livelihood. These are your guys out there. And then the game gets blown up. And then the guy who you counted on to come through doesn't. And then you drive home. Frequently with my son in the back of your car. We'll come back to that in a moment as We're well. Ones, yes. How do you handle losses? When, when knowing, like, even in a good season, you're going to deal with 60, 70,
1: 80 of them. How do you handle losses? Um, so the so one thing that, that working in the industry, I think, changes your fandom in a way, you are, you are invested, in, invested every day in the results, but you can't, be, you can't be overreactive. Like, if you watched us, if you sat up here with us during a game, you'd be surprised how little cheering, how little reaction to good or bad, you know, there's mumbles and right. and, and we, we, we all like celebrate the end of a victory and give knuckles and do, you know, but right. like, it's not, it, it's, I hope to be at, in South Bend, Indiana a week from tomorrow to go to a Notre Dame football game at which I will have a totally different personality. I will not, I will not be rational about like, <laughs> well, yes, sometimes you will fail on third down, right? Like, it's a very different... Uh, the one nice thing is that I haven't lost the, that part of the fandom in other sports. Yes. I'm still a big bears fan, bulls fan, black, I well, don't really black, I don't like, like that much, but the bit Notre Dame football. And I look at those very much like, like okay. what you're describing. Yeah. Your parents watching a game, right. Um, in, in baseball, it's, it's a livelihood. It's just a different, it's a different attitude. And, and I think in some ways, one of the good things about it is that we play every stinking day. Yeah. So, no loss is, until you get to the playoffs, no loss is, like, that heartbreaking right. that you can't recover from it the next day. I don't know if I was a, if I ended up in the NFL somehow and you only play once a week and you only have 16 of them and every one that you, you know, that, that blowing a fourth quarter league right. is, like, right. literally, like, your season is now on the, you know. I don't know if I could handle that as well. But this is a, the, the part of what makes baseball great is that it's a six-month, all summer long, there's always tomorrow. Mm. Oh, hey, to write that one down
0: in your live inspired <laughs> journals. There is always tomorrow, that's a gift. And with that gift comes the, uh, the opportunity of hearing from others. You are an idiot, Gersh, follow Twitter. Mo an idiot. The, the response for talk shows, nickel reviewers, Twitter, social media, it's negative to anybody in the public sphere. But when you're a fan of a sport or a follower of that team, if for some reason we think it gives us license to personally critique those, Who are responsible for guiding our team forward? How do you, Mo Ali, the other leaders for the Cardinals, manage, respond to, in particular, as continual winners, that constant
1: critic that comes in from the outside? So I think there's a couple things. One is, like I said, when uh, when I'm in South Bend, Indiana, and 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 they uh, they call a blitz when I think they shouldn't have, I I will, you know, I I will critique them in my own way. Right, not on Twitter, but to my to my son sitting next to me, I'll be like, Can you believe this? Part of it is like I get it, right? Like I was I was, you know, I grew up listening to sports radio and occasionally calling into sports radio as a kid. Like I I get it. (laughs) So that's one thing. Part of it is, you know, we do in various forms interact with fans, whether it's season ticket holder events or you know, going on the radio or whatever. And I have never had someone to my face. Say anything nearly as negative as what's said on Twitter, yeah. right? And so you know that it's it's not it, Twitter's not real. E- even the even the most harsh critic or the meanest people or whatever, like if they if they see you as a human being, as a person, mm-hmm. they, they 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 don't they don't treat you that way, right? So like it, it's it's somewhat, it makes it easier to just be like, okay, that's fine. Yeah. A, I don't have to read Twitter. I don't have to read the comments of the post dispatch. I don't have to read any of this stuff. And B, when I interact with people. Almost none of them, except your son sometimes, <laughs> almost none of them critique our moves. So, uh, I mean, like, people have comments, but no one's, no one's being spirited about it. Everyone wants the same thing. I mean, like, everyone in the front office and everyone in the St. Louis region wants the Cardinals win World Series. Like, we're all, like, 100% aligned at what the goal is, right? And it's just the right. difference of the on how to get there. The critiquing and, and the, like, it's... It, it, it's I, I do like to know what fans are talking about or what the fans are... I mean, I think... We're not the only people who have good ideas, right? right. Like we, there, are, there are outside sources that have good ideas on, on whatever, how to solve a problem, how to talk to a player, how to use players differently, whatever the case may be. So I don't want to like close off myself to outside information, but there's a difference between reading well thought out articles and research, you know, blog posts and the like, and reading, you know, a guy on Twitter who's got 144 characters to say, you guys, line. Are, you guys are all idiots. And often those guys say that in the second inning, and then in the seventh inning they come back and, and right. you know, Go to the run, World Series. Right, right. It just depends how the game. Is.
0: Does it bother you that for a decade we haven't had a losing season, and that's very seldom celebrated, that for the last 20-plus years we just win, And it's not as if Cincinnati doesn't win, although people could argue. Maybe they don't. <laughs> most of these owners and most of the front offices and most of the teams on the field actually want to win every game, not just the Cardinals and we're not the only team entitled to victory. So when you've had the run that you've had as a front office, it's very seldom celebrated
1: as a a fan base, really. How do you feel about that? Um, I mean, it it, it is, I don't know how to say. What what Mo has led in our front office over the, I believe it's 17 seasons, He's no, 15 seasons, he's been the head of the baseball operations. The stretch we've had is is, is is incredible. I think we're third in wins in, in the period he's been in, in, in charge behind the Yankees and Dodgers, who spend almost double our payroll each year. The, the fact is, like uh, American sports are about champions, right in every sport right the, the, the reason that the reason that michael Jordan part of the reason Michael Jordan is the icon he is is because he went to the final six times and won six titles, right? right Part of the reason when Bill Russell passed away, every article is about how. He I think it was like he went to eleven game seven or eleven do or dies and he won all eleven of them in his in his high school, college and freshman career. I mean, like it's championships, right? And and our sport is is one where being the best team in the regular season does not highly correlate with winning a championship. There, there's a lot of uncertainty, a lot of a lot of randomness in the playoffs. And we benefited from that. In two thousand six we were one of the worst teams to ever make the playoffs and we and we won it a World Series out of it. So so being long-term successful is one of our goals organizationally. We our like sort of promise to our fans is that every year is going to matter. Like, we are not going to we're not we're not going to tank. We're not going to like punt this year for some year down the road. Like every year we plan to be competitive, and I think we've delivered on that. But you know we haven't had a World Series in, in a decade, and that's that's like a real thing. That's what that ultimately that's what we're all chasing. Did I just hear you commit to a World Series this year? Yeah. <laughs> I'll commit to it. I don't know what that means.
0: Okay. What keeps you humble? And let me back into it a little bit farther. In leadership, uh, we have the honor of working with a lot of organizations. And you meet a whole lot of leaders who run organizations. And frequently, the characteristics that you see least in leaders, corporate America, around the world, politics, is just humility. And I've gotten to know you not only as a front office guy who I look up to, but as a friend who I look up to. And Mike, you're just steadfast in your humility what what keeps you humble well
1: i think um i appreciate that i think that uh context matters and that i'm probably not nearly as humble in some contexts as uh, as i am in others um i do think baseball itself is a very humbling industry to work in everything we do all the work that we put in to decision-making, to trades, to free agent signings, to who's going to pinch hit in the seventh inning tonight when a lefty comes in from the bullpen.
0: Right.
1: We're, we're, we're trying to get a 52-48 or a 51-49 advantage, right? These are not, there, there's very, I mean, like to your point, there's 30 other teams trying to do the exact same thing, right, and so this is not, we're not going to, we, we have not and we very likely will not find something that puts us in such an advantage that you can be like, yeah, i got this game figured out, right? Um, the other day, we, had, we have two MVP candidates on our team in, in, in Paul Goldschmidt and Nolan Arenado. They both had incredible offensive seasons in the, uh, I don't know what inning it was, the ninth, eighth inning of a game here in St. Louis. We were losing. We had two men on base. They were both up with a chance to, to tie or give us the lead, and they both struck out. And now there's two outs. And there's still two guys on base, and a guy who strikes out 30% of the time, Tyler O'Neill had a tough year this year, it was great last year, had a tough year all year this year, really struggling, comes up and he's one of those 3 run homer to win the game, right? Like it doesn't make sense, right? It's just it's 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 a lot of probabilities and, and and like it's not absolute. And so every time you think you have sort of figured out something, you watch a game and realize that like nah, it's, it's you're just rolling dice at the end of the day. And so um, I think that's part of what keeps most people in baseball pretty humble because it's it, it, every night it challenges you uh, whether you actually know what you're doing or not. Mm. Final question before we move into the
0: Live Inspired Seven is um. not everybody listening to our show is a baseball fan, or if you can imagine, a St. Louis Cardinals fan. Yeah. I know that you find that offensive, it is. but it is what it is. You aren't always <laughs> either, Michael. <laughs> but everybody's trying to live the best life they can. And uh, you made the analogy a moment ago that that baseball and life have some similarities. For those of us who are in the midst of a losing streak and uh, aren't as uh, surrounded by other great leaders in their front office as you are, and as I am, league, what encouragement would you have for them today as they uh, get ready to wrap up this podcast and step into their season?
1: From, from, from a baseball standpoint, the one thing we try to remember is that whether it's the team or an individual player, things are never as bad as they look were as good as they look, right? So whether it's when the team last year we won 17 straight games, that didn't mean that we were suddenly the greatest team in the history of the sport. It meant that we were a good team that had some things breaking our way. Um, and at times this year we we were playing pretty lousy baseball. And it didn't mean that we were not going to have a chance to make the playoffs. It meant that we were a pretty decent team who was having things not go their way. Right. I think that's true for individual players on our team. I think that's true for individual decisions in the front office. I think it's true for for, you know, your relationship with your kids and your spouse. Like when things are bad, it doesn't mean they're gonna be bad forever. when things are good, it doesn't mean they're gonna be good forever. And trying to trying to know when to adjust, right? When is things going bad mean, oh, we do need to make a change. And when are things going bad mean it's just it's just a cold streak and it'll and it'll work out. Um, is, is the challenge. But I think staying more in the middle, staying knowing things are always gonna regress back to the mean at some point. <laughs> is a uh, is, is part of the way to kind of not not uh, not swing to extremes
0: i, I lied i said that, that was my final question but there is one more i'm watching now some of the players take the field you and i are recording this in the gm box right behind the old plate grass is green tractors are rolling around the baseball diamond looks brilliant playoffs right on the horizon how surreal is it that this kid from Chicago who had a grandfather from Poland who took him to a couple of Cubs games growing up. He died when he were eight years old and you get melanoma and life is up and down and full of tons of twists along
1: the way that you've not found yourself as the general manager of one of 30 baseball teams. You have to pinch yourself sometimes. Anything in life becomes routine after a while. Right. So walking into a baseball stadium as my office after 17 years, like I don't I don't. On a daily basis, sort of recognize how unique this opportunity is. Uh, but there's always there's always things you do that 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 do make you realize, like, wow, this is this is very cool. You know, walking walking uh, into the dugout, uh, into the clubhouse at Fenway Park, and knowing the the hundred years worth of history that's happened at that park. Doing the same thing at Wrigley Field. You know, um, you know, being part of two World Series championships. there are there are moments where you. Uh, you remember that, like, man, this worked out pretty well. So, so baseball thing kind of worked out. It
0: so. has indeed. Well, Mike Hirsch, uh, my friend, I think you also know we have seven questions that tether all of our guests together. I should have prepped this more. From former managers of the St. Louis Cardinals, my friend, Mike Matheny, to baseball players, to Hall of Famers, and now my friend, Mike Gersh. So, Mike, the very first question
1: is, what's been the most influential book or best book you've ever read? Ever is a long time, but I read a book, uh, called the comfort crisis recently about how human beings used to have big challenges in their life throughout life, right? Uh, especially growing up, especially males growing up were sent off to, to sort of prove their manhood in some way. And that, uh, society has, we've advanced so far that we very rarely are uncomfortable and th- that challenging yourself to find places that are uncomfortable is, uh, is something that we probably should do more. Mm. And, uh, I, I enjoyed the book, and now I have a group of guys that we do crazy, uncomfortable things with.
0: So I read that book, too, and had him on our podcast about 12 episodes ago. Okay. And yeah, that doesn't mean life's easy. So some people would hear that cynically with their arms crossed, saying, does, does Gersh have any idea how hard my life is? What he was referring to is it's pretty climate-controlled. Right. And most meals are pretty easily served up, and right. we're usually not starving. And so to put yourself out there in positions, even boredom, Not having a phone you and i both have our phones in front of us right now step away from all that is a wonderful way to when you return to recognize how blessed you are
1: right it's not that life is easy it's that the future comforts of life come awfully easy to it right and that's that's something that uh, we get spoiled by
0: what's one positive characteristic you possessed as an eight-year-old boy seated next to greg at wrigley field with your grandfather taking you that you wish you exhibited as brilliantly today so, positive characteristic that Michael Gersh had as a kid that he wishes he tapped into more. I think
1: I I, I had more fun. I think I, I I was more apt to enjoy things in a way that, uh, as a middle-aged man, I find reasons to um, not do silly things like. I've Well, watching you with kids and your kids in particular, like you're you're the you're a little kid at heart and still are, and I think that. That sort of little kid, like, right. let's do something silly and be silly. I've, I've aged out of it in a way that I'm not exactly proud of or happy with. But uh, every now and then I sneak it back. I've seen it a couple times. And I think
0: Kelly and Beth you know each other as friends, right. our wives. Beth is probably complaining about that characteristic of mine. Right. That right. little kid. Right. like, oh, I hate my husband. <laughs> He's just a freaking kid. Grow <laughs> up, John. If your home caught fire, Kelly and your four kids and your dog are all out. Two hey, dogs. Dude, That's right. Both of them. Yeah. Both of them are out safe. you have an opportunity to run in and grab one item. What's the
1: one thing you come back outside with? So I knew this one of the questions, and I, I actually thought about this one. And I I am not a sentimental person. I am not. There's look, I have two World Series rings. I like I don't look at them on a daily basis. I don't show them to the people. If they I if they were lost in the fire, I wouldn't it wouldn't affect oh, my life very much. Uh, this is like the most. This is this is a, a, an insight into how I think. The practical answer is I would go grab my backpack because it contains my laptop, which has all of my kids' pictures and all of the stuff that I would want, and it has uh, the information on how to rebuild our lives. <laughs> I don't know who our insurance company is, but I could find it if I had access to my laptop, and I could probably do it off of the cloud or off of some other process. But I would probably run inside and grab my grab my backpack because it's got all the. Uh, the key thing, it also does have a couple little things that mean something to me, like cards I get for my kids. There's some things I slide into, my, into the right the, mm-hmm. the, the pocket of my backpack. So, when I'm on the road somewhere I, and I'm and I'm uh you know down or, or feeling alone or whatever, I go spring training for weeks at a time and I'm alone a lot. So, I have a few things in there that that have a little bit more sentimental value than I'm, I'm laying uh, implying, but uh, um, mm-hmm. yeah, or more so than any individual item in my house, I think that. Just the ability I'm to bad. like the ability to take to rebuild. Because I think as long as my four kids and wife are, are with me, we can we'll be fine. Mm.
0: If you could sit at a baseball stadium, hopefully Bush Stadium, with anybody and have a wonderful time watching the Cardinals win, with anyone living or deceased, who would you like to be seated next to?
1: I think Papa. I think my. I think uh, I think be able to talk to him as an adult as opposed to a 7 year or eight-year-old would, uh, and show them what I've done. Would be, would be cool. That's so cool. Gersh, by the way, for those of you not watching, but you're listening,
0: finally got emotional. So finally, <laughs> finally, we proved he's not a robot. He's not a spreadsheet. He's a human freaking being. And talking about Papa at Busch Stadium, watching his former Cubs cheering grandson,
1: now Cardinals
0: general manager,
1: would be a really cool conversation yeah, to that'd have. Be very cool. That's yeah, very cool. I, I would have to convince him to put a Cardinal hat on, which might be a challenge. (laughs) What's the best advice, Graham, your your papa, your parents, Kelly, or anybody else ever gave you? I think the best advice that I can think of, my dad told me once in some context, probably more about uh, business career than anything else, but um, something along the lines of you'll never hit a home run if you don't take a chance. and and he was he worked at a, you know, as a CPA at a at a accounting firm and left to go work at a, at a small company that ended up growing into a Fortune 500 company and that was the sort of thing he was talking about like when I was looking for a job out of school I right. was like look don't just don't just take the safe route like and his version of home run I think was more about financially was what he was talking about but I don't think in any way he was telling me to quit my job and move to St Louis and try chasing down a baseball dream but I think in a way he was saying like take a chance, like you're not gonna, you're not gonna hit a financial home run or a career home run by like taking the safe route. And mm-hmm. I think, uh, I think that, that attitude, whether he, he definitely told me that at once, but I think just that way he talked about everything in life, like, like you're a smart guy, you're young, you've got opportunities, go for It's yeah. it something that uh, in a small way, you know, set me on the path that I'm on.
0: If you could whisper a little bit of encouragement and wisdom into your ear at age 20,
1: so going back a few decades,
0: what would you say to yourself at age twenty?
1: I had to do it over again. I tell him like, get into baseball sooner. <laughs> like, there's two twin eighteen month olds and a pregnant wife is not the time to explain to her that now is now is when I want to chase this dream. I think partially that's that's absolutely true, but I think part of what has made me successful in my baseball career is that I worked in in, in other industries. I worked for consulting firms. I worked in places where I got tons of training. That you know, baseball teams are, I, I know we're on TV, I know we seem like big business, but like we're sort of small, small businesses at the end of the day. We don't have a robust training system. We don't have right. work planning seminars and, and PowerPoint seminars. And, and going through all that thing, all that training along the way, I think put me in a position where when I got here, I, I was ready to roll. So I, I think 20-year-old me, I wish, so I, I went to Notre Dame. Uh, I spent four years on campus. I never once saw a college baseball game. I think i at least tell 20 year old like, just go to a couple games so that when people ask you, you at least can, like, pretend (laughs) that you were interested in baseball back then. But I was, but just not in college.
0: Michael Gersh, it has been said that all great people can have their lives summed up in one sentence. You knew it was coming. How do you want your one sentence to read?
1: I'd like my sentence to start with something about being a, a, a good father and husband and someone who followed his passion I don't know that I make a difference in the world, but I make a difference in a small part of the happiness of the St. Louis region. So uh, followed my passion to, uh, to help the Cardinals uh, continue to be a successful organization.
0: Michael Gersh, you are a great husband and an awesome father and a dear friend and a humble guy and a great general manager. i lucky and blessed to look up to you, to hug you, to go to church with you, to raise our kids together, and to call you my friend. It's been a pleasure, O'Leary my friends that is michael gersh he's the general manager of the winning st louis cardinals my name is john o'leary and today is our day let's live inspired well my friends there were so many takeaways from this conversation with gersh The, the first is this while he and i are talking that's pretty fun just talking to the general managers of the st louis cardinals in the suite where they work and live and cheer uh, getting ready on the field as the sun is shining were the ballplayers, ballplayers that Mike helped draft, helped sign, helped recruit, helped draw into this organization, and ultimately help lead to yet another playoff run. Pretty remarkable. But for me, the most remarkable part about this entire podcast is you had a fella who is in an elite position, one of only 30 people who have a job like this around the world, And you never heard him brag. You never heard anything at all that even hinted toward, look what I've done. Instead, you hear this incredibly faithful, servant-minded. Yeah, Mike's a brilliant God, but he's not gonna be the first one to tell you that. A man who has served and worked and risked and challenged and lucked and got a little bit of faith along the way, his way to this room today. For me, it's a reminder that regardless of what your dream is, whether you desire to become the general manager of your baseball team and your community, or you dream of having a wonderful relationship with a loved one at home, you dream of rekindling a relationship with one that you've fallen into disrepair with seemingly, you dream of moving through an addiction or aspire to something bigger than what you're doing right now, whatever that dream is, it's not too late. It's not too far. Your life is too important this moment too grand, to wish it away, to think for a moment that you missed out on your chance. Mike's life is evidence that it's not too late. Today's the day. Right now is the moment. Don't delay. I want to thank you for listening to today's Live Inspired Podcast with my buddy Mike Gersh. I want to thank you for being part of our Live Inspired Podcast community. And I want to remind you that in spite of the headwind and the challenges that we all face, in particular for you Cubs fans out there, that the foundation is firm, that the headwinds may be real, but that the best is yet to come. So thank you for being part of our family for this time. And until next time, my name is John O'Leary. Today is your day. Live inspired. You know that Keeley Companies is all about fostering the world-class culture through their incredible cultural pillars. Well, it was time to add a seventh cultural pillar, Keeley Green. Guided by the mission to raise the sustainability standards by which they design, build, operate, and live, Keeley Green is dedicated to using a holistic approach to leave a positive impact on our environment, create a future that is sustainable for generations to come. In the words of Rusty Keeley, we are just getting started. You can learn more about that just getting started mentality and all the work they do by visiting my friends at Keeley Companies online at KeeleyCompanies.com.